0: to see all of you uh, fellow masochists here who want a bit of despair in your Christmas um, a bit of unhappiness Uh, I guess some of you at least are here so that um, when next time you see those very happy people on Instagram you can uh, feel superior by knowing that you have embraced desire over happiness so that's what I'm going to try and help you do today Um, before I start uh, have I got anything to tell you about Um, not much but uh, yeah of course first things first is like pour yourself a drink or get a cup of coffee relax enjoy uh, chat to people uh, throw up your comments what you like what you don't like questions and at the end uh, of my talk I'll go and have a look and see if I can find a few questions to address Um, other thing is If you like this kind of stuff and you want to be unkind to yourself this Christmas uh, you should go and visit my patreon there's hundreds of hours of book studies courses and seminars like this one um, that uh, will uh, I promise will bring a lack of fulfillment so you can check that out Um, and also atheism for lent is coming up Um, we've got I've actually doing a course an advent course on the monstrous God infant this idea of this clash of opposites that comes together in a productive way Uh, that's actually what this is going to be about today as well and it's also what Atheism for Lent's about because it's a monstrous clash of theism and atheism um, in this uh, movement this dialectical movement so if you're interested in Atheism for Lent um, I've started selling um, a group ticket so the group tickets like 400 bucks but that gets you 12 people so it's like 30 bucks each and also a seminar about how to run a group and then 40 days of material so uh, that's there but you can also sign up to patreon to get into it as well and I'm going to be selling individual tickets soon so atheism for Lent is on its way that is the end of my promotion I'm not selling any t-shirts or anything like that although I will mention Elliot's game movie movie um, uh, I mentioned it, if you saw on my Instagram today, because I'm going to be talking about Contradiction. They've made a game that is a very fun type of Contradiction, where they uh, um, basically explain two movies, uh, or they, they, there's two movies are put together and their synopsis is kind of mixed together and you hear the synopsis and you have to guess the name of the new movie, which is an amalgamation of two movies. It's called The Movie Movie Game. I didn't explain it very well, but go check it out. Um, Okay, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this pop-up Paro Seminar, where I want to look at uh, happiness and its relationship to uh, desire. Just to give you a little bit of a background uh, of where we're gonna go, uh, I'm gonna start with a, a Jewish parable that I used to tell 20 years ago. Uh, It's in one of my early books, but if you've been following my work more recently, you won't have heard it. But I want to kind of give a psychoanalytic interpretation. So I'm going to start with this Jewish parable and I'm going to use it to make sense of what is called the elemental cell in the graph of desire by Lacan. So Lacan has this thing called the graph of desire. It's actually four graphs and they each get more complicated as they go but the elementary cell is the first version of the graph. If you're watching this online, you might wanna open up a separate window and just bring it up so that when I'm referencing it, you'll have it beside you. Uh, You'll know it because it has uh, an S on the left and an S1 on the right and a line between the two. And then it has a barred S at the bottom left and a little triangle in the bottom right. Um, If you're watching this edited version, I will actually, through the magic of editing, it'll appear on your screen when I'm talking about it. So I'm gonna use this parable to explain this elemental sale. And uh, I'm gonna do, and in doing that, I want to draw out the difference between what I would call um, optimized therapies. Therapies that are designed to adapt you to the world, to help you get what you want, to help you be happy with a kind of uh, a uh, productive maladaptation type of psychoanalysis which is designed to lead you out of happiness into a type of monstrous um, catastrophe in which you encounter the contradiction that you are right and then i'll end with a merry christmas so uh, start with the parable very old parable of these two rabbis who are sitting in a park arguing over a passage in the torah Now, these two rabbis have never been able to agree about what this passage means, right? They they have contradictory interpretations, and every week they get together, and they fight about it, and they argue about it. And this has gone on for about 20 years. And finally, God, who's in heaven watching all of this, is just getting sick of it. Uh, He's going to the angels, listen, I've been listening to these guys, natter on about what this verse in the Torah means I'll go down and I'll tell them what it means so God parts the clouds comes down to the park where the two rabbis are in the midst of their argument and says to them listen lads I've listened to you guys argue about this for 20 years I'll tell you what it means and in a rare moment of unity the two rabbis turn to god and say what right have you to come down from heaven and tell us what it means you bugger off and let us argue about it right now this is a fascinating parable it's actually a beautifully constructed parable um and um i want to use it uh to kind of start to deconstruct the difference between happiness and desire to do that i want to start by saying that God can be seen in this parable as the incoming of happiness, right? So God is the representation of happiness in this parable. And why? Because happiness is the category of uh, rendering contradiction uh, into opposition uh, to make contradiction contingent, to cover it over, to find your true self. Right? Beneath all of the contradictions, who you really are, right? to help you uh, realize what it is you want, and maybe even manifest that in your life. Right? And God, of course, in religious, uh, traditional terms, is precisely that. The one who brings wholeness to you, the one who gets rid of contradiction, who brings peace, the one who brings happiness. Right? So God represents that. The Torah can be seen to represent what's called the signifying chain. right? So if you're looking at the uh, graph of desire, the elementary cell, you'll see that there is an S and then an arrow going from left to right to S1. That is called the signifying chain. And the signifying chain simply means um, a set of meanings, a set of words. It's not quite words, because words are signifiers. If I say the word Amanda, right, Amanda is a name of a woman, and uh, it signifies that. But also you have a-man-da, right? So if you're in psychoanalysis, maybe maybe you'll find a different signifier that's nestled in Amanda that you didn't see. A man, right, or whatever, right? So signifiers are, are little fragments of meaning. Uh, Signifieds are what they refer to, but signifiers are just little fragments of meaning where we live within signifiers. Right now I am speaking to you, I'm giving you words, I'm giving you signifiers, and you wouldn't be able to repeat back to me exactly what I'm saying, but you get the gist of it, you get the feel of it, right? And the signifying chain moves forward. I'm speaking to you, and as I speak to you, you learn you get meaning we communicate meaning okay that's the signifying chain Um, however if you look at the diagram you'll also see that there is a triangle in the bottom right and there's a line that goes through the signifying chain to a barred s now first thing to note about that line is it's going the opposite way to the chain of signifiers so the chain of signifiers is moving forward, but something is cutting across it and moving back. Right, so, okay, what, what this means is, first of all, maybe I've got ahead of myself, that the, the signifying chain, there's two bits. There's the beginning and there's the end. Right. There's the beginning and there's the end. S is the beginning, S1 is the end. And you only really know what the signification is of speech when you get to the end, right? Jokes are the perfect way of understanding this. It's not a difficult concept. It can sound like a difficult concept, but it's not, right? Most jokes, uh, or even you could say the basic formula of all jokes in a way, is that there's a signifying chain, and at the very end something is said that makes you reinterpret everything that went before it. So uh, Jimmy Carr, told a joke recently I heard, where he said, every six seconds, someone calls Alliance Insurance asking for a quote. The guy must be nuts right so very simple joke very the jimmy cars jokes all basically have this structure right every six seconds someone calls alliance insurance to ask for a quote what you're thinking is that there are millions of people phoning alliance insurance to get quotes and then he says at the end the guy's a nutter, right and suddenly you've reinterpreted everything before it. It's not millions of people, it's one person phoning every six seconds, who must be crazy, right? Um, uh, It's like uh, whenever, you know, supposedly Bono was talking about kids in Africa and said, every time I click my fingers, a child dies. And someone in the crowd shouted, stop clicking your fingers, right? So there's a signifying chain, and the thing at the end, the button point uh, makes you reinterpret it. Uh, someone else who's very good at this is uh, Anthony Jeselnik. I heard him do a joke where he said that he would never get a dog again because he once got a puppy and the first time he left the puppy alone, it wet the place, it defecated everywhere, it ripped up the sofa and it died of starvation. Right? So again, you're moving along with the signifying chain and then you get to that last signifier, dies of starvation. And at first you're thinking, oh, the first time he left the dog for a couple of hours. And then you realize that he actually meant he left the dog for a couple of weeks. So that's, that's what it means. And by the way, this is true of life, right? You, you kind of only make meaning out of your life retroactively. This is very important for Freud. Retroactivity, if I was homeless most of my life, And I was struggling and unemployed and I was actually all of these things, but like uh, for a while. Right. Um, Right. But then something happens and I find what I want to do and I give myself to this type of work. Right. All of how I interpret living in the squad and being unemployed and all of that takes on a new signification because of what happened here. And in a way, only when we die, when our life is buttoned at the end, can you get a a kind of feel for the person's entire life. Uh, Like if someone becomes a great poet at the age of 50, it retroactively changes all of these other things that we understood about their past, because now they were like a prophecy leading to this moment at which they were birthed as a great poet. And therefore we talk about, we say something like such and such a poet was born in 1972, right? Well, they weren't born in 1972 because they, they became a poet 50 years later. But, but now retroactively we say the great poet was born in 1972 because we retroactively interpret everything that happened in relation to that in religious terms. The, the, in Christianity, the New Testament retroactively changes the Hebrew Scriptures so they become the Old Testament, right? So the Torah is like that. The Torah is a signifying chain that is understood backwards, right? You, you, you look at it, you reflect on it. Um, so there's the signifying chain. Then there is this loop that I mentioned that goes through the signifying chain, and this represents individuals, and this represents the the um, the rabbis, so I'm gonna talk about the rabbis as being the bard subject. So God is happiness, the Torah is the signifying chain, the rabbis are the bard subject. The barred subject means that we as infants eventually or are interpolated into language, which means we are folded into language. We, we're surrounded by signifiers, we don't know what they mean, and eventually we start to pick it up and we pick it up backwards, right? So you see the line goes backwards because you're hearing words before you understand them. Then you're beginning to understand them. And then you're beginning to reinterpret the past, reinterpret things that were before you could understand, before you were in the symbolic register. So we eventually are birthed into language and that makes us We're subjects of language, we're speaking subjects. Right, now then, why are there two rabbis? Well, because the barred subject is not one. The barred subject is not properly speaking two either, but the the, the barred subject is a one who is at war with themselves. And so there there are kind of two subjects. So Lacan talks about two types of subject. There is the subject that speaks, right right now i'm speaking to you i'm communicating meaning to you um you're listening to me and i can say lots of things about the world i can say lots of things about myself there is a subject in that i am the subject of that speech the subject speaking i'm the subject basically linking together all of those signifiers but in psychoanalysis for neurotics there is another subject and the sub that subject isn't is speaking but without any kind of I, any kind of knowledge. So for example, if someone says to me, um, oh, you know, the pandemic, the world's falling apart, we're in such a precarious situation, right? At the level of the speaking subject, they're talking about the pandemic. The world's falling apart, we're in this incredibly uh, precarious place. However, the person who's saying that to some friends is in a relationship that is very teetering, right? Where there's lots of fighting, lots of aggression, um, they're not getting on. And so then you hear the words, uh, we're precarious. Now there's no subject saying that, but it's something that's being spoken within the statement, right? And that is what's called the unconscious, the Freudian unconscious it is what is being spoken within our speech that we are not aware of now of course dreams freudian slips whenever you forget something whenever you you know change someone's name it happens all the time whenever you give advice that's a very big one When, when people give advice very often if you listen they're giving advice to themselves but they don't know it right they're saying something about their own desire to you in a disavowed way in a repressed way um, so if someone's giving you very passionate av- advice about something, um, and then, you know, more so than it should be, more passionate than it needs to be, they're telling you that you should, uh, you know, leave your partner and you should never see her again. You should walk away. They might be saying something about their job, that they want to leave their job, they want to walk away, but but it's not subjectivized. It's uh, it's hitching a ride within the speech. Um, so. That's kind of, so I've got a great example. So I, so I had a friend who called me up the other day, said, I woke up and I had a terrible fear that you died in COVID. I was like, okay, okay. What did I do wrong, right? Why did you want me to die in COVID? And it turned out, when, we, when I talked about this, I fed it back, very gradually fed it back. It turned out that I'd forgotten something very important about the death of somebody else, an anniversary. And uh, that person had died of pneumonia. And this person was annoyed at me because I had forgotten about this. And this was all in the speech, but it wasn't subjectivized. What what, all I heard was, I was really terrified that you had died of COVID. Um, So within that speech, another subject was speaking. Now, the subject wasn't hidden. And this is very key. Um, Slavoj Žižek uses a great joke to um, help people understand the, the unconscious, where he says, right, there's this guy, and I'll put it in Irish, right, there's this guy called Seamus, and he's smuggling something across the border between Northern Ireland and the South of Ireland, right? So every week, he goes across the border, right, with a whole pile of junk in a wheelbarrow. He goes past, and the border guards get a tip off one day. They get a tip off that this guy, Seamus, is smuggling something. So every time he goes across the border, he's taken to the side, they go through all of the stuff, they go through his pockets, they look in his mouth, can never find anything, and there he goes, goes off with the wheelbarrow, right? This goes on for about two years, and eventually, Seamus is no longer going across the border, and one night he's at the pub, and one of the border guards is there, goes up to him, buys Seamus a drink, says, there you go, mate, there's a Guinness. He says, listen, Tell me something, just between us. He says, we got a tip off that you were smuggling something. Could never find it. We went through all your stuff. You know that wheelbarrow, we just went in and we dug around it, couldn't find anything. What were you smuggling? And Seamus looks at him with a smile. He says, I was smuggling wheelbarrows, right? Now, the reason why why um, <laughs> Seamus, why Shizek um, uh, tells that story is because that is an important brilliant analogy for what's called the double inscription understanding of the unconscious right the single inscription notion is that the unconscious is in a depth it's hidden beneath and if you go in you can find it the double inscription means that so it's called single inscription which means your consciousness is always on one single thing and you can you can orient your consciousness onto the unconscious. So single inscription, you're looking at this, you're conscious of this stuff, and then you shine the spotlight on the unconscious and you bring it to light. The double inscription simply means that the two things are superimposed. Um, uh, Like uh, I heard one person describe it as like a radio that's between two stations. The music is, is superimposed. They're both happening at the same time. You don't look within to find the unconscious. It's on the surface. Now, this means you can never meditate your way to the unconscious, right? Meditation is great. There's a place for it. I know people who really enjoy meditation, but you can never meditate your way to the unconscious because the unconscious is not something you can become conscious of. It's not something that if you go deep enough, that if you shine the light of your consciousness on it, you discover it. Your unconscious is always what is being spoken within your speech, uh, what is being said within your saying. And so you can only encounter your unconscious through a type of technique in which you retroactively listen, almost like backtracking. You know the old Christian thing where like you had to, play the vinyl background to hear the, the evil message. You have to train yourself to be a backtracker, a Christian uh, rock and roll backtracker. Uh, you, you listen to what you've said and you hear that message distorted within your speech. And technically it's so hard to do that you actually, it's better to do it with a specialist, somebody, because your whole consciousness is designed to prevent you from hearing the unconscious speak. So, right. So that is, oh yeah. Oh, and, and, and right. Okay. So that's the Torah. We've talked about God. We've talked about the Torah, the signifying shame. And, um, oh yeah. And the reason why I was talking about the barred subject, the reason why the rabbis are the barred subject is because they're arguing, they're fighting. There's two discourses going on. Right? They're talking over each other, they're fighting. Right, That's a, a good metaphor for what we are as a subject. We are not one. We have this conflictual discourse. We have one discourse and then we have a second one inscribed into the first one, and they don't fit. You don't just love someone, you can love someone and hate them. You don't just want to go out, you also want to stay in. You don't want to just be successful, you also want to be unsuccessful. You don't want to just please your parents, you also want your parents to be disappointed in you. You want to rebel against them, um, and you want to uh, do something that evokes their desire. Right. So we are all of these contradictions. That is what the barred subject is. Lacan's critique of psychology was that psychology is attempting to find a true self, a non-conflictual, non-contradictory self that is the the seat within which this happens. Whereas for Lacan, the subject is the site in which contradiction takes place, right? So we are the rabbis. Now, if you've got all that in place, God is happiness, the Torah is the signifying chain, the rabbis are the barred subject. Happiness is what comes in to try to get rid of one of those voices, the unconscious, right? To, To make you one, so that there is a singular discourse that is really you, the true self. So that might be, you might use drugs for that, you might use alcohol for that, you might use sex for that, you might use all sorts of things that come in to try to help you, uh, uh, to help kind of dampen that that experience of the unconscious. Um, and uh, so this is, this is kind of like the incoming of God, right? And we're so tempted to accept that. Now, it never fully works. This is why you've got the return of the repressed. Because we are the contradiction, happiness can only dull the senses. Now, by the way, addiction, right? So think about addiction, like alcohol addiction, drug addiction. Uh, ad- addiction means a right? Which means without speech, right? So to be addicted is to be without speech, which means to be outside the symbolic frame. To temporarily step outside of the symbolic register, and so often whenever you take drugs, and by the way, I'm not against the taking of drugs. I'm against the taking of drugs as a way to avoid contradiction. But there are a way to there's a way to use alcohol, for example, to, to open it up. Right, uh, a lot of creative people use drugs in order precisely to open them up to the contradiction. So I'm just talking about the attempt to close it down, which is what addiction is. Right. So you can you can take drugs alcohol without being an addict but once you use alcohol to get outside the symbolic register you are an addict and you know which means you want to stop that form of speech you want to go back to the imaginary and the imaginary is the realm of everything is a reflection of you you're a reflection of everything you can touch on this true self but you can never fully get rid of the symbolic. You can never get fully get rid of the contradiction that we are. Right. Um, this then brings me to the difference between depth psychology or gestalt therapies or counselling, and and actually, I don't like some of those things can be good, definitely, and have value. But any type of therapy that seeks to um, close down this argument that is taking place, the argument that you are uh, in the double inscription of the conscious and the unconscious. Any attempt to kind of like help you manifest your destiny and find out what you want and in five steps or 10 steps get there and and have an easy thing, what you should should, uh, give up your job or you should stay with your job. All these people could give you all this advice that makes life seem easy that there's an easy way forward. You just have to shut down the complexity, right? Um, uh, any therapy or any counseling that is attempting to, you know, help you move on from the person and kind of get get on with your life and kind of close down the, the, the symptomology, because symptoms a symptom is the clash of a contradiction. Whenever you have a symptom, you have two opposing desires in your body and the symptom is the compromise formation, right? So you want to work hard, but you also uh, are rebelling against your your parents' desire because they wanted you to work hard, and so you do want to work, and the symptom is fatigue. Fatigue is this weird thing where you want to work hard, but there's some part of you that's resisting it, and the symptom is fatigue. Or you're crunching your teeth because you want to shout at somebody, but you also want to keep your mouth shut and the compromise formation is a sore jaw, right? Whatever it is, right? Compromised formations. And counselling is a way to get rid of the contradictions. That is opposed to psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis is not in the category of happiness. Psychoanalysis is trying to help you not compromise your desire. And not compromising your desire means that you listen to the the argument and the conflict that you are and that you don't run away from it by trying to just keep with the conscious desires, right? You also listen to the unconscious drive. And the point of psychoanalysis is you become conscious of these contradictions. For a neurotic, you become conscious of these contradictions that are within you, these these different, the, the conflictual nature of desire and you start to find within it something productive and good. So what does that mean? Well, think of it in relation to the two rabbis, right? This is a, instead of adaptation, right, in terms of like ego psychology, trying to adapt you better to your environment, psychoanalysis is about productive maladaptation, being in the world but not of it. So these two people, they're maladapted, right? They're arguing, and what is it producing? Well, it's producing lots of things. One, it's producing friendship, right? They're getting there for 20, I've been telling the story for 20 years to be honest. So they've been arguing for 20 years um, about this, these passages in the Torah. And so it's generating friendship. They probably laugh together, they argue, they have conflict, They, they you know they, they, they're at each other's family events. So it produces friendship. It also produces knowledge right i'm sure after 20 years of arguing they have learned so much from each other right so it's productive of knowledge and then thirdly it's productive of vocation these are two rabbis right so they spend their life writing and speaking right and engaging with people and so this argument i'm sure is productive of creating more intense and interesting work in speech and uh, in terms of ink so this is a productive maladaptation that produces something. And what the rabbis know is that this also produces enjoyment, right? They're enjoying their not-at-oneness with each other. They're enjoying their this, this sense of conflict. And so whenever happiness comes in, addiction, to say, you can get outside of this conflictual type of signifying chain. They are courageous enough to say, no, we will not compromise our desire. Our desire is conflictual, and we will stay within the white hot fires of our desire and see what it produces. So happiness is always a type of failure of courage. It's a failure to have the courage to stand in front of that white hot fire that molten fire of our desire but the truth is we all feel at times to do that so it's very hard to do that's why you know psychoanalysis is important Pyro theology is is as you can hear from the name pyro, to stand in front of the fire of our desire right now the interesting thing about this parable is it is a religious parable and this is the last thing i want to say about it is what i love about this is it's like the secret of what religion is uh, this is religionless religion, post theistic religion, or the, the, the kind of um, the, the, uh, the heart of it, right? Because we think of religion precisely as God is the one who brings happiness, wholeness, completeness. And in this parable, because parables are always written within a context, right? They critique what is known and what is commonplace. So, of course, in this parable, God comes in exactly as we would expect God to come in in this, in, the, in, the, in that frame. The rabbis reject God, tell God to go back. They reject God in favor of the signifying chain, in the favor of the Torah. But God withdraws with a smile. And the idea is that, oh, in this betrayal of God, you're actually hitting the very heart of religion. Right. So spirituality is often about oneness, completeness, wholeness and happiness. This is a rejection of spirituality for religion, religion, the place of kind of like uh, symbolic structures, conflictual interpretations, uh, you know, all of that. So this is not uh, you know, spiritual, not religious. No, this is religious, not spiritual. Right. This is this is re- rejecting the God of happiness for the, the signifying chain. But that being. The heart of what it means to actually uh, be faithful to the faith, and um, this then gets you to why I'm interested in contradiction within within Christianity and within psychoanalysis. So, to finish up, I will say, oh, I'll use this example. I used this recently, uh, maybe to to kind of like get to the core of what this means is imagine if i was to write paro theology as a book right the ultimate book in paro theology it would be a choose your own adventure book right i used to love choose your own adventure books when i was a kid you know that turn to page 15 if you want to go this way turn to page 20 if you want to go that way right well in my choose your own adventure book there'll be this kid little johnny little johnny's very pious right goes to church every week and one week he's sitting in church And he hears something from the the minister and he thinks, this is all rubbish, this is all contradictory. So now you've got an option, what do you do? So little Johnny decides, you know what, actually, I'm gonna repress those doubts, I'm gonna hide myself from those questions and I'm gonna read Josh McDowell, right? I'm gonna get into apologetics. Turn to page 13. Or little Johnny knows Lucy and Lucy's got really into this uh, whole psychedelic enlightenment stuff and you can find that's doing that. So little Johnny goes and hangs out with Lucy, turn to page 115, right? Or little Johnny hits this contradiction and thinks, oh, this contradiction is not something to run from, either to repress or to um, accept and then move away to try to find another non-contradictory position but I want to go into the contradiction. I think the contradiction might be part of my faith. So turn to page 12, right? So turn to page 12, and this little Choose Your Own Adventure book will keep doing this. He, he hits uh, another time, he's in a kind of mysticism, or he's into something else, and he goes, oh, uh, he's got doubts of contradictions. Does he turn to William Lee and Craig, or does he get into new atheism or whatever, right? No, he goes further into the contradiction. And then in the last page, he opens it up, and there's an image of Christ crucified, the ultimate monstrous contradiction between the infinite and the finite, that which can never die, dying. Caught in this image of like a dying individual. And there, he identifies with that image, embraces the contradiction of reality, because that's the symbol. Ultimate reality is contradictory. Embraces that contradiction within himself, and lives happily, unhappily, Ever after. And there you go. That is my Christmas sermon. So now I'm going to go and see if there's any questions, if any of you stuck with me through all of this. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yeah, Matt quotes that great line by Kierkegaard: Life must be lived forwards and understood backwards. So you you, you live life forwards, but you understand it backwards. And Hegel says, the oil of Minerva spreads her wings at dusk, which means only after everything has happened can philosophy come in and understand what has happened. Kierkegaard was much more Hegelian than he thought. Um, Let's see. (laughs) <laughs> she like, uses a great joke to illustrate this and I'll put it in the Irish, yes, in Irish, uh, into an Irish context. Um, oh, that's interesting. Fargo does a great version of the wheelbarrow story and there's a link to that. I'll have to check out that link. Um, oh, Heather says, I remember backtracking stairway to heaven. When it turned backwards it said i will sing because i live with satan nice one (laughs) Uh, yeah it was a stretch yeah i'm sure it was yeah um oh i I remember that one another one bites the dust start to smoke marijuana Uh, you know funny enough that's the thing there's most quite talking about is backtracking there must have been a few of yous then were uh, hanging around in that era where that was a big thing or backmasking is that what it's called Um, let's see I'm just going through everything Shauna says something about 10 minutes before the end made me wonder how this fits with Hegel sorry I can't be more sorry yes this is very Hegelian so my main influence is Hegel really Um, uh, Hegel is all about contradiction The Phenomenology of Spirit is this book that basically brings you through contradictions. Um, you start with what's called sense certainty, which is the idea that you just experience the world as it is, the kind of people who meditate, who want to just basically experience the world outside of language, just as it is. And then Hegel exposes the contradiction within that, and then that leads to a thing called perception. And then that, that the contradictions within perception leads to understanding. And he goes through this, this movement and shows how contradiction is what moves everything. And then at the very end of the phenomenology of spirit, according to the Hegel scholars that I like, people like Todd McGowan and Slavio Žižek, is Hegel says you confront the ultimate contradiction. And by the way, this is why Hegel liked Christianity, because the step before understanding it philosophically is that is seeing the contradiction within Christ. So he thought Christianity kind of grasped this central contradiction, and then he gets to what he called absolute knowing. Which is the point at which you you identify directly with the contradiction itself. You realize that you can't overcome it. You're always trying to overcome it, right? You know the next the next color in the spiral dynamic or whatever. You're always you're always trying to overcome, overcome, overcome. But the the you know the last color will be the embrace of the contradiction itself. And uh, you know I've I've talked about this before, but in politics you can call it democracy, which is the contradiction in the social body that creates progress. In physics, it's uh, you know it's superpositioning, which is the the uh, the uh, duality within being, which uh, you know uh, we have particle duality, that that uh, that that is productive of being. Um, In biology, it's called evolution. Uh, In mathematics, incompleteness theorem, Um, and in radical theology or paratheology, it's called salvation, the moment of. the full embrace of desire over happiness. I, I hope that kind of makes some sense. I, I, I want to do some talks on Hegel at some stage in the near future. I could kind of say more about that. But ultimately, yeah, Hegel brings together thought and being together in this mutual contradiction. It's funny because mm-hmm. Hegel basically, the whole point is how do we think reality, right? There's thought and there's being. How do we get to reality? How do we get outside our minds? And Hegel says we don't, but our minds are inside reality. Uh, we are the universe thinking itself and Thinkings are, and the contradictions within thinking are the contradictions w- that are within reality. And uh, so yeah, it's fascinating speculative stuff um, Let me see where it was uh, and more people are asking questions nice. So I got a bit lost here um, uh, By the way, oh, yeah, Natalie um, was bringing up that that notion of addiction that I talked about, so I just want to give a source for that. There's a guy called Rick Lucy. In fact, he looks like Rick Luce. If you look at his name, Rick Luce, like Rick Luce. Go like, is that a real name? But I've been told it is a real name. He's an Irish psychoanalyst, or at least he's a psychoanalyst who lives in Ireland, and uh, he writes on addiction, and he does some really interesting stuff on that that notion. Oh yes, so Catherine says, I hear you say that the courage to stay within the contradiction is affirming of our being. Uh, then in a turn, God stands in the way of being or does God provide the courage for being? Yeah, so my interpretation of this parable is it's a critique of the religious notion of God, but ultimately with that notion of God withdrawing with a smile, which I don't know if that's in the original, but there's loads of Jewish parables with this structure, which does have that end. There's like, we're two rabbis are arguing over um something over over what should happen to a person and god comes in to decide it and they tell god to go or, or no one of them quotes the torah one of them quotes the torah and beats god in an argument and god smiles and leaves and so this 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 structure of that type of jewish parable is a way of kind of critiquing a religious notion of god as what stands the religious notion of god as the, the the closure of contradiction, but seeing that actually the heart of religion is the opening of contradiction. So if you've, you know, this is central to my work in terms of, you know, how I read the uh, Garden of Eden, right? You know, it's an Oedipus story. In Oedipus, there's, Oedipus wants to sleep with his mother, but he can't because of his father. He kills his father, sleeps with his mother, and it's a disaster, right? The Freudian notion here is that the, the mother represents oceanic oneness, the, the, the end of contradiction, the return to the womb, right? The father is what gets in the way of that return. Oedipus breaks through the prohibition, gets the oneness and it's a disaster, right? Gets happiness and it's an absolute tragedy. In Adam and Eve, it's the same structure, an Oedipal structure, Adam and Eve in the garden, the piece of fruit that will make you like God, make you lack the lack, whole and complete, the prohibition that stops them from getting it they break the prohibition get the fruit and it's a disaster and the crucifixion is the replaying of the Garden of Eden right the Temple of Jerusalem you've got the Court of Gentiles just like in the Garden of Eden Adam and Eve can walk around and the Court of Gentiles anybody can be there you've got the Holy of Holies you know where the sacred dwells and then you've got a massive curtain And the crucifixion, the curtain rips open, you see there's nothing in there, the sacred object doesn't exist. You are disillusioned of that idea of something that can bring oneness. And then God is the embrace of the struggle of love where we care for one another, the epoch of the Holy Ghost, I did that very quickly, Um, but uh, my book, The Divine Magician, takes its time and, and outlines that. So that whole point, Is that the religious notion of God is the devil, Satan, like the you know the serpent who is saying you can be whole and complete if only you eat this fruit? And the and grace is freedom from that pursuit of oneness. It's so grace is where you go, I don't need to be whole and complete, I don't need to do anything. I can I can accept and stand in the contradiction that I am. So grace is the technology of exorcism of this satanic notion of God. Don't know if that helps or not um, okay uh, okay uh, so uh, someone blooming asks what are some ways we can not drive our family mad with fear that we've lost our minds as we begin to embrace uncertainty and desire rejecting their violent positivity uh, um, we were talking about this last night uh, the, the difficulty of course is when it comes to those we love we can often not be much help because we're so uh, emotionally invested. So it can be very, very difficult. But if I, if I take it away from family for a second, um, whenever, often when people are very, very unable to confront their contradictions, the issue is they always come out. There's always a return of the repressed. So first of all, they're always in suffering. They just don't know it. Um, And sadly, the suffering is mostly for other people. So for example, if you think you've got the answer and you can't embrace doubt or unknowing, you'll end up kicking people out of your home, kicking people out of your church, right? You'll, You'll end up destroying relationships, you'll destroy people's lives. That's a return of the repressed. Your inability to face your own doubts and unknowing manifests itself in a reaction formation that looks like you're so certain that you can't tolerate other people's difference. Um, whereas if you really were confident in what you believed, you wouldn't mind difference, right? You wouldn't be threatened by it. So often we are, all of us, afraid of destabilization, right? I do these things called decentering practices, right? Um, and the decentering practices are designed to help destabilize you in a way that is not terrifying. Just like in psychoanalysis, is a way to destabilize you in a way that is you're contained that You're able to do it. Someone is there to walk with you. Um, you meet them twice or three times a week, so that you you don't feel you're going to fall to pieces, because resistances always appear, which are the the, the attempts to to protect yourself from this this experience of destabilization. And um, and by the way, yeah, I, maybe we should talk about the difference between neurotic and psychotic symptoms at some point because they're very different. So, but it, I'm talking about neurosis at the moment. Um, so what do you do? Well, very carefully with a, with a friend is you wait for those moments at which you see a chink in the armor, a moment of weakness where they're admitting their conflictual desire. Their desire, say for example, you're in a very religious family and they'd never consider divorce. But one of the people starts to go, well, you know, things aren't quite as good as I make out or sometimes this person really annoys me or sometimes I don't know if I'm as happy as I pretend on Instagram, whatever it is. And of course you don't turn around and go, ha ha, I knew it. (laughs) You very subtly go, oh yeah, no, I mean, you know, I know how you feel, it can be really tough. Like, is there, have you got an example of, of anything or, you know, would you like to talk about it? You know, I'm here to listen. And you create an environment where they're gradually able to hear a part of themselves that they struggle to listen to, you know, you, but you listen to their words, right? So as I say, if someone's talking about COVID and they keep talking about how everything is so precarious, feed that word back to them in a different context. Say, you know, in the right moment, go like, oh, you know, you, you look as if, you know, it feels like things are a bit precarious for you at the moment. Is, and so what you're doing is you're taking the signifier that they use that they haven't been able to subjectivize and very subtly you're, you're helping them use it in a more subjective way. And you can do that with with family. Um, it's just, you know, you've got to be slow, you've got to wait for the right moments, but they are there. The unconscious is always speaking, um, and it's about finding the right moments to bring that out. Uh, but yeah, very, very difficult to do with family. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, <laughs> happiness is a failure of courage. As a bumper sticker, that would be good. I could sell those for Christmas um let's see oh adam says how do you cope with with the fire of contradiction when it gets too hot that's a nice metaphor right this is very true right this is easier said than done and for some people anyone who's gone through serious trauma in the past um this kind of embracing of contradiction is impossible and this is what uh, this is where we come to psychotic structure right so a psychotic structure is in brief, a structure in which someone, something potentially traumatic, really traumatic happened, that wasn't subjectivized at all. So it wasn't brought into the the symbolic realm at all. And what in Lacanian psychoanalysis they say is, it remains in the real. And what that means is, for someone who suffers from psychotic symptoms, they, experience things in reality not metaphorically it's called concrete thinking so neurotics are always thinking in metaphors so when they talk about the world is falling apart that's a metaphor right but but a psychotic structure is one that's concrete they literally believe the world is falling apart or that they're falling apart, like literally they think their body's falling apart or literally they think there's an intruder in the house. No doubt there's literally an intruder or there's literally sharks under the bed or the FBI are literally watching them, right? It's not a metaphor, it's like literal, it's in the world. They literally, without any doubt, they're tyrannized by certainty, right? So so psychotic structure is one in which there is the tyranny of certainty an inability to, to make into metaphor your own internal structure and that is someone who's had an incredibly profound trauma and that takes a lot of time and a lot of work the simple thing is of course art music good friends and therapy can all help in this um, but you are right that we can't it, it, we need help to stand in front of the fire of our desire we need help and that's why i do power theology That's why I believe in structures. That's why I believe that every week we should go to some sort of liturgical enactment of the contradiction, which um, I want to start again when COVID's in the back burner maybe start a community again. Because often at the very point that we open ourselves up to the contradiction, we're often asked to leave religion. So that's the very point when you're kicked out of your community. But that's the very point when you need it. That's why way back at the start of my work, I talked about to believe as humans, to doubt divine. What I meant by that is to happiness is human but to actually open yourself up to your internal contradictions is takes takes like godlike powers (laughs) and so we need people we need art we need music we need community and uh and otherwise it's too tough um to do so yeah that's that's why we need all of those things and we just need to chill out sometimes (laughs) um let's see uh, Sarah's saying that you haven't the quote on your desk, tarry with the negative. Yes, engaging with the struggle. Yeah, nice nice thing to have on your desk. Uh, oh, so, so I saw a good question there and then it bounced away because someone else wrote something. Let me see. Okay, I shouldn't do too much more. Uh, I don't want to keep use forever, although you can always disappear off and watch this later. Um, let's see. Would we, Ryan says, would we be able to say that an embrace of contradiction leads to some kind of contentment? If so, isn't that just happiness by another name? And then I think you added a second point. Oh no, maybe not, right? Yeah, I would actually say that the embrace of contradiction leads to a type of contentment or peace, but it's a dialectic piece, right? So here's the difference. There's non-dialectic peace and there's dialectic peace. Like Plato said, you shouldn't be introduced to dialectics until you're at least 30 because it's just too complicated, right? So the first type of thing that we're, we, we know is cause and effect. Cause and effect is where one thing influences an external other thing. That's what we know in science, right? Dialectics is different. Dialectics is where something, something in, right? Well, one example is something in us generates its opposite and then that opposite envelops what it rejected, and there is this movement of, of oppositions, of thesis and antithesis. And in this dialectical movement, um, there is a type of um, I want to w- avoid the word synthesis. Uh, there is a type of um, uh, what Hegel calls unity of unity and difference. So what I'll say to this is that in psychoanalysis, when they talk about an object, they're not talking about an external object. right? so whenever you talk about your mother or your father as an object you mean they exist out there in the world but in psychoanalysis you're talking about how they exist within you right so that's the object that you're interested in and that object is still an object because it's different from you and it's making demands on you so you might be trying to please your mother or annoy her even after she's dead as a real object she's still an object that's within your subjectivity and so there's this object that is within you, but is opposite from you. Create and then, and then as you uh, uh, are able to integrate and understand that, then it captures you because you realize that your desire is in that. That is kind of a dialectic movement. Now the reason why I'm saying all of that is a non-dialectic happiness is one that seeks a movement away from peace. Dialectic happiness finds it within sadness, joy within pain, uh, peace within chaos. There's loads of, we all know this. If if you go to an analyst, you go, you've got two choices, light and darkness, happiness and sadness. You want to get rid of the darkness. You want to get rid of the sadness. So maybe you go to an analyst. But what does the analyst do? They go, you have to choose the sadness and the darkness. And only in the sadness will you find happiness and only in the darkness will you find light. And in religion, like if you've got two choices, life and death, we want to choose life. But it says, no, choose death. Or you've got two paths, the wide and the narrow. We want to choose the wide, but you choose the narrow. This is why I love about dialectics: is um, it's you always choose the worst, right? We because in our natural thing is if we're seen as two two positions that are t- that are in front of us, we want to choose the best, or we want to try and merge them together in a one. Dialectics is no, you choose the worst, and in choosing the worst courageously, you get the best. So you are you're right but i wouldn't say you get you get happy contentment by different means i would say you get a different type of contentment um it's a very different type of, it's not a contentment that tries to dull the contradiction it's a contentment that finds itself at home in the contradiction uh, if that helps um, and then shy asks is this seeking uh catharsis without processing contradiction and getting addicted to shallow catharsis while avoiding and dodging the contradiction. I I think that might've been actually a response to, or a conversation with Ryan, I think you're engaging in there, that sounds right. Uh, Joe says, I'll do a couple more. Joe says, uh, what is your encouragement to those whose doubts and rejection of an inherited system of happiness keeps them from gaining any traction toward meaningful purpose? What is your encouragement to those whose doubt and rejection of an inherited system of happiness uh, keeps them from gaining any traction towards meaningful purpose. Um, I like that question. I wanna kind of just let it sink in. So as I get what you're saying, so I answer what you're saying, not what I think you're saying. Um, so rejection of inheritance system of happiness. So yeah, that's, that's. I guess, you know, say you grew up in a religious background, you're saying that the way that, if you think a certain way, you do a certain set of things that will make you happy, right with God, you know, whatever, right? You reject that, um, but that, uh, uh, you're saying, but that keeps you from gaining traction towards meaningful purpose. Yeah, so you're saying that once you lose that, then then people can feel completely divorced from, like enter into nihilism basically, enter into this space of, of destitution. If I get you right, my my answer is depressing which is subjective destitution is a, a step a step that one needs to take it's called the death of god as well it's the it's the loss of meaning it's the loss of the things that held you together and I, the reason why i don't think you can avoid this experience that say an analysis called subjective destitution The the reason why you can't get rid of it is because we are already in we're like we as we grow, we want to avoid the contradiction. We learn all sorts of ways to avoid it. Um, and so we're, we're always like, there's always a point when something goes wrong and we, for the first time, like when love, right? First time you break up with someone and it's incredibly devastating, right? Um, and you, you're falling apart. And um, you feel like everything's going to pieces. You kind of have to enter into that in order to realize that you don't, that there is something something after it. So that subjective destitution is a step, but it's not a step you stay in. That nihilistic moment is only a moment that then can lead to something else. So it's, it's almost called, it's called the uh, the failure and success, maybe you get everything you want, for example, and you discover that it doesn't satisfy you. And then in that nihilistic moment of realizing you don't have what you want, that failure opens up to a deeper success where you realize that the enjoyment of life is in the struggle and the suffering itself. So I do think that there is, a, there is, there is this, and it sounds like you've experienced it, this uh, movement away, this courageous kind of collapse, I would call it the crucifixion, right? and one stays within that for a bit and then I think the idea is that you find meaning arising out of the struggle itself, not the rejection of struggle, but just the struggle of life itself. That's a bit of a boring answer. Uh, I hope that helped. <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna do one more, just so I'm just going down. Uh Oh yeah, Adam, I'll go for this. This is a nice kind of practical question. Do you have an easy way to describe this to loved ones during the Christmas season in a way that is non-threatening and easy to grasp? You know, Obviously, short answer is, as you would expect, no, right? But there's a reason for that. Good news is, is that it doesn't even need to be explained, right? That's the first key, it doesn't need to be explained. It needs to be, invite. It, you, one invites a person in to something. And that's important. Like, so preaching—we think of preaching meaning communication of information, because in the modern church, actually, that's often what it is—some sort of communication of information. But technically, preaching is about an invitation. It's an invitation into a, a, a way of being, a different, a, into a form of desire. I've just had a, one of those state of emergency things on my phone. Sorry, it's buzzing like crazy. Um, oh yeah, so preaching is like an invitation into something. So. Um, in a way, what one's always wanting to do is just look out for those moments when you're with friends and family that you see there's a point where an invitation into this complexity and contradiction makes itself felt. But you have gotta have patience. You know, it could be days, weeks, months, years. And you can't really invite someone in who doesn't already want it. Uh, in my work, you know, I, I help people unpick unhealthy parts of their lives and religious lives sometimes and whatever but they always in some way enter into a type of contract with me they've already started the journey they're already kind of there and they just need me um, as a little bit of help along the path and maybe sometimes they think i'm the what's called the subject supposed to know i'm the one who has the answers and then through talking with me they realize that they're the ones doing the work so a lot of this just like in, in the, the, the practice of parotheology is not a sermon, it's not like this. Uh, it's trying to find poetry and art and music and various things that help invite us into this, help draw us into this. So very concretely, maybe you're at Christmas dinner and you're spending a few days with your family and you're talking about uh, something and you, you see a crack in what the person is saying. And it's like, you know, for, for someone who's very right, there's always a crack. There's always the, the, this place of opening an opportunity, but it's never what you think it is, right? It's never where you are. And, and if we are, if I'm looking at it in relation to me, I'll never see it. It's like, it's within the logic of the other. It's like, we all have ghosts, right? We're all haunted houses. We're all haunted by people we've hurt, people we, who have hurt us, right? A ghost is the presence of an absence something that isn't there but still remains with with us but my ghosts are different from yours right so i'm not looking to impose my ghosts on you but i have to help you see what 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 you're haunted by and maybe the person at the table is starting to wonder whether adam and eve was literal and to you you're like oh my goodness that's a ridiculous question it's not ridiculous to them just like a question that they might think is ridiculous that you're asking is, you know, is not it's not ridiculous. So it's it's you're looking not for what you the crack you're looking for the, the what's within them. What is the signifier within their within their speech that opens that that is an invitation into uh, gradually opening up to this complexity of desire. I don't know if that makes sense. All right, okay. I've had this for long enough, been here for over an hour. Thank you so much for uh, checking in and um, uh, maybe do this again. Uh, There's also an Advent course that I'm running at the moment. Um, We're already two weeks in, but it's all pre-recorded, so you can watch the other other weeks. Um, Apart from that, have a great Christmas, and uh, I'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye.